You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. And Caroline, big tech sounding a warning for 2023. The market seems really calm about what they're seeing. Managing to shake off some of the chip concern, even as that isn't just around earnings, but about geopolitics as well, Ed. We're back here in New York. They are there in SF, but we're both going to be looking at the NASDAQ 100's best week in months, hey? But not without major fluctuations in the semiconductor space after Intel's dismal earnings and those new curbs for China-made chips. Then Elon Musk faces an SEC probe over his role in misguided claims about Tesla's autopilot system, the Bloomberg Scoop. And thousands of tech workers got laid off after they came to the US on work visas. What one nonprofit's doing about it? But first, a check on all these markets, and Ed was talking about it, the fact that we see resilience, even though there's some worrying signs amid a number of the earnings that came out this week. And we think of the Intels and Microsofts, the, of course, Texas Instruments as well. But the Nasdaq manages to push on up more than a percentage point. In fact, we are really seeing this particular index on a roll. Highest in September of last year. Four straight weeks of growth that we've seen. Four straight weeks of gains. We haven't seen that back since August of 2022. All Country World Index also gets a slight bid today, up about a quarter percent. Nowhere near the enthusiasm in the US, though. Many focus on the Federal Reserve next week. Many focused, of course, on what it means for interest rate path. We're looking at Bloomberg Commodity Index. Interestingly, sinking ahead of China's reopening after the Lunar New Year next week. Maybe some money coming back out of copper, for example. Let's look at on. Let's look at what is a really out-and-out technology focus that is the SOX, because as much as we saw that enthusiasm around the Nasdaq head, really the chip sector pulling us lower, off by seven-tenths of a cent for the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index. Yeah, look, I'm going to start on the positive here and focus straight on Tesla. Really big jump on Friday, continuing the momentum for earnings, but a 33% gain on the week. It's best week going back to May of 2013. Clearly, investors are believing what Elon Musk has to say about momentum. The negative is behind me, right, which is Intel, having its worst week since December, its biggest drop on Friday for a single session since September. Is this a question about what's happening in a cyclical chip sector, or is this a question about what is happening with Intel specifically? That is the question that I have. What is wrong with Intel? So great, we had the best person to talk with about this. Daniel Flax, Managing Director, Senior Research Analyst, covering the 
technology sector broadly at Newberger Berman, 427 billions, of course, in assets under management. That is the question. What is wrong with Intel, Dan? In, Intel ha is uh, going through a multi-year transition. And if we step back and think about the past decade, the company uh, lost competitiveness. Uh, they, they weren't making products uh, that, that were as, as cutting edge as they had previously. And so what's changed in the last couple of years is you've had CEO Pat Gelsinger come back to the company, uh, really reinvest aggressively, bring in new people like CFO Dave Zinsner, uh, who, whom we think highly of along with Pat. And, and they are working to to uh, uh, execute better on the product roadmaps, uh, deliver value to customers. And certainly when we speak to the customers, Intel remains strategic. And so looking out, I think there's a, a multi-year journey still ahead for Intel. Uh, but if they can make better products, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think they can deliver value for customers and ultimately for shareholders as well. Dan, extrapolating this out further, how worried about, are you about the end markets? You know, you look at PC, desktop, also servers, and what Intel had to say about the first half of this year in particular. What does that tell you about what's to come for the technology sector? Certainly, we're in a period where, where there's cyclical headwinds. Um, if we think back uh, over the past couple of years, there was enormous demand, say, for, for PCs as one example, uh, dur during lockdowns, during, during, during the, the worst of COVID. And so there's a little bit of uh, digestion of that. So I, I, I expect over the next several months, the, the industry will work through uh, inventories in PCs as one example. The economy is, is slowing. It's impacting uh, enterprises as they spend. But if we look out to later this year, and really further into 2024, I think we'll see better growth. And so the companies that have the products, that have the solutions, uh, th those, those can benefit. And, and if we step back and look at some of the secular trends, so for example, artificial intelligence, uh, the, the, the ability to deliver value in areas uh, like drug discovery, look at a company like NVIDIA, it too faces cyclical headwinds, but they have uh, tremendous growth drivers and product cycles um, yeah. in areas like the data center. So we still see opportunities Certainly, they're near-term headwinds, though. Talk about those headwinds that aren't just perhaps cyclical in nature, Daniel, but they're also related to geopolitics. And NVIDIA is just one of them, which, of course, has China exposure. I'm thinking today of the, the scoop, really, coming from Bloomberg, talking about how the Biden administration is getting closer to getting Japan, the Netherlands, to come on side to limit China's access to the semiconductor technology that it so wishes to build. How is that a help or a hindrance to some of these U.S. players? I think the, the geopolitical and the trade tension, uh, clearly it's been with us for several years and it's continuing to intensify. It is having impacts on, on some companies' ability to ship uh, the, the most advanced technologies into markets like China. But, but I think globally, demand for these products over the next several years is likely to be healthy. And that's driven by, by build out, for example, of, of the cloud and really this digital infrastructure. And so in the near term, uh, the restrictions are going to impact companies that that do sell uh, in certain cases uh, with certain products into China. But I think ultimately that demand uh, uh, does grow. And those companies like ASM Lithography is one example, uh, will, will continue to have uh, attractive multi-year growth uh, prospects. What about the R&D that then is still needed as we see the cyclical nature, the fall away of PC demand, the fact that we're going to see slowing revenues that some analysts just said were well, was phenomenal, staggering was one of the words used. Are we still going to have to see this sort of spend come in that means we're seeing these fabs come up in the United States and all bringing it closer shore? 
I, I think the build out uh, in the United States, in Europe, in, in other geographies outside of Asia will continue. But, but it's a multi-year process to build them and to equip them. And, and of course, a, a modern fab uh, could cost around $20 billion. So it's no small financial undertaking. I think the, the industry will remain cyclical. But, but if we look out to the middle and really the latter part of the decade, demand for silicon is likely to continue growing. Right. And that's because it's not just in PCs and smartphones. It's really going everywhere. And that, I think, is the, the bigger story in many ways in terms of this transformation of the industrial landscape, uh, putting intelligence in, into uh, all, all sorts of devices. You have companies yes. like Qualcomm, for example, that do that. So there's well, a lot of growth, even with cyclicality. Well, Daniel, I want to go to Qualcomm really quickly. They report next week. The story there is about diversifying away from the smartphone. Do you think that they'll buck the trend we've seen in a limited way so far from the chip sector? They're, they're also going to be impacted by, by some of the smartphone uh, industry inventories that have built up. But as we look out over the next several months, I think what we'll see is that China's beginning to open up. China's an enormous... Uh, market for smartphones and other mobile devices, and Qualcomm will benefit from that from that uh, growth uh, uh, rebound. I think the bigger story, though, uh, beyond that, is is their success in areas like automobiles, where they have a thirty billion dollar design win pipeline. And so, CEO Cristiano Amon, I think, is making the right investments. They're diversifying the company and their intellectual property uh, in key areas like connectivity and security and automation yeah. are, are, are powerful and valuable to customers. Daniel, great. Great to have some time with you. Have a wonderful weekend. Daniel Flax, Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst over at Newberger Berman, really going through a whole host of names in the chip space. We've got another one for you because let's talk about NVIDIA. It's been faring pretty well of late. And the president, the CEO, Jensen Huang, who's been doing particularly well to be perhaps building his wealth, largely in part because of the soaring popularity of ChatGPT. This man has seen his fortune climb by 33% this year. Over $18 billion now is his overall fortune after NVIDIA has become basically a dominant player in powering AI applications, autonomous cars, robots, to crypto, to mining, of course, and a speciality that's made it one of Wall Street's top wages for how to profit from the rapid business interest in AI. So I guess in spite of Intel's fall, in spite of the doom and the gloom, Ed, it feels as though, in particular, there's some hope around chip makers. Morgan Stanley actually had this take on it. We do like some of the semiconductors down here uh, that that look like they're starting to, to put in cyclical troughs uh, in the traditional sense. Some of the software services companies. Oh, nice pivot there from semiconductors to the software companies. And we can delve into one key software company now because Salesforce appointing three new independent directors to its board. That's as pressure builds from activist investors, of course. Let's talk to Bloomberg's Liana Baker for more on this. And really, it was the scoop from Ed Hammond yesterday and from your team that we were likely to see these cast of characters come onto the board. And, well, it occurs, Liana. So some of the cast of characters have come on the board. Value Act, uh, you know, that mystery activist investor, we were trying to figure out who else was in there besides Starboard, Elliot, and Jeff Ubbin. So this is really the start of something. Uh, Value Act certainly will have an influence on the board. They're very interested in, you know, corporate governance and, and making changes, but in a friendly way with the company. But there's still the question of what happens with these other activists who are still very much involved and the the shares were muted today so um you know the news was received okay by the market but i think there's going to be some more action on this one 
Liana, let's stick with that kind of main protagonist then, I suppose, for want of a better description. Who is Mason Morfitt? And talk to us about Value Act, their track record, what it is they come into companies and do. Well, they're based in your part of the world, San Francisco. They have about $13 billion, uh, under management. And Mason Morfitt is no stranger to technology. He uh, sat on the Microsoft board for about four years, from 2014 to 2017. I heard the stock in that time doubled. So uh, he will definitely bring that experience, uh, public board experience, uh, with him. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're known for making changes, as I mentioned, in a friendly way with the company. Uh, so it'll be good to have some sort of uh, investor viewpoint on the board uh, to help because uh, the shares aren't trading so great for Salesforce. Bloomberg's Liana Baker leading a big week for our deals team out of New York. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, back here in San Francisco, regulators investigating Elon Musk's role in shaping Tesla's self-driving car claims. The review is part of an ongoing SEC probe of the company's statements about its autopilot driver, autopilot driver assistance system, that according to a Bloomberg source. Officials are weighing whether Musk specifically may have inappropriately made forward-looking statements and, and carried this, this story, this reporting, hot on the heels of that other scoop from Dana Hall and Sean O'Kane earlier this month about the 2016 video, right? The emails where Elon Musk is directing the language used behind how they described autopilot in those nascent stages. And the SEC is just hot on his heels, isn't it, in every sort of direction of this. But ultimately, it all comes down to the fact, and it's almost reminiscent of what he's just been in court trying to explain around his 2018 tweet of funding yes. secured, is when you're a CEO, the leader of a business, the visionary, when you say certain things, people believe them. And they end up being forward-looking guidance, basically, whether or not he wants them to be. Yeah, and, and Bloomberg source pointing out this is an extension of the existing SEC probe, which was originally reported by a number of media outlets back in October. It's today's Bloomberg Big Take. Davy Alba, Kurt Wagner, taking a deep dive into one of Elon Musk's most faithful supporters, Ella Irwin. She's Twitter's head of trust and safety and seems willing to overlook protocol to appease her new boss. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner joins us now on it. So first and foremost, who is Ella Irwin, Kurt? Yeah, so Ella uh, is the head of trust and safety at Twitter. So she's essentially in charge of a lot of the teams that work on, uh, you know, keeping Twitter safe, right? The, the, they used to fight misinformation. They used to take down hate speech. Um, you know, this is the same group that, for example, uh, was responsible for suspending President Donald Trump a few years ago, right? And so this is a pretty high-profile job. A lot of these decisions we've seen uh, be very controversial over the years. So the person who kind of runs trust and safety at Twitter has always been a, a high-profile role in that regard because the decisions that are made are so important to free speech uh, on the Internet, right? And so uh, she stepped into a, a very senior position under Elon in just the last couple months. Well, that was what I found so interesting about this. You and I have done a lot of reporting together over recent months and more than recent months, honestly. And that was a name I didn't recognize. You know, we, we documented on a day by day basis the people leaving Twitter, those that chose to stay. So now my question is, what is it that she's doing? You know, what is the crux of your big take story that you've learned about her role within the building? Yeah, well, you probably aren't familiar with her name because she really just joined Twitter over the summer, just a few months before Elon Musk took over, right? So she was not necessarily a senior leader 
in the way that um, a lot of employees were or someone who a lot of employees were familiar with by the time that the deal closed. Right. But what we you know, pointed out in our big take and why I think this is an interesting story is that, you know, they're kind of bucking a lot of the trends of of, so, of uh, trust and safety over at Twitter these days. Right. I mean, this is a this is an organization that exists at Facebook and YouTube and all the other social players. And, you know, the last couple of years, we've seen these groups get really refined, right? They have tons of policies. They have tons of procedures. Um, there's a, there's kind of a, a standard way of doing some of this stuff, right? And under Elon, a lot of that has got thrown out the window. And so we've seen, um, you know, uh, for example, they just got rid of their COVID misinformation policies. One example, you may remember, Ed, a few weeks ago, they just started suspending journalists. Uh, sort of without a, a great explanation, right? And so what we've seen is just kind of like this playbook yes. that I think a lot of folks are familiar with get tossed out, and that's why we find it interesting. Well, give us some some sort of granularity around the decisions or actions that she is t- carrying out, I suppose, on Elon Musk's behalf. Yeah, well, typically these types of things would go through a strict process, right? You know, they, they might go through multiple teams, multiple layers, certainly multiple levels of review. And what we've seen and what we mentioned in our story was that, you know, we've seen screenshots of things like, hey, we want this account suspended on the order of Elon or we want this suspended on the order of Ella. Right. And these are just, again, not the way that usually these checks and balances tend to work. And so there's a lot of people in the world of trust and safety who are worried that there's simply just too much power being uh, held by one or two people here in this instance. And that, you know, if they're not following a lot of these uh, checks and balances that we're used to, you know, you don't know exactly where, where that's going to end up. Right. And again, these journalists being sort of suspended um, out of the blue is just one example. But you can imagine that being extrapolated to a bunch of different accounts. Her rise or indeed her remaining. How have people talked about that and, and the way in which she's navigated her career at Twitter? Sure. Well, I mean, I think the issue is not at all that Ella is, is un- incompetent or, or, or anything like that. I mean, she's had a bunch of really strong um, uh, roles at tech companies before. She's described to us as an incredible operator, someone who's very organized, who's very passionate, who, who's very um, you know emotional about the things that, that she cares about. But I don't think she had much experience doing uh, uh, you know speech policy, right? Like a lot of times we'll see with trust and safety, they're, they're academics or they're lawyers or they're people who have maybe spent their whole life thinking about things like, Section 230. Uh, that does not. That is not Ella's background, right? And so I think there was a little bit of concern again from people who were within Twitter's trust and safety, but even just like the broader industry, that you know she's now in a role that requires that type of nuance, and you know it's something that you build over time. And I'm just not sure that she's been in that role long enough, especially with Elon and how he operates, that it's instilling a lot of confidence in people right now. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner, great reporting, keeping us posted on what's happening inside the bird's nest. We'll get more from you next week. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, the information says Apple plans to develop software to help users of its mixed reality headset build their own apps. The company's working on its own AR content for its $3,000 headset. According to the report, Apple hopes that even people who don't know computer code can use the software to tell the headset via Siri to build an AR app. That application would then be available on its app's store for others to download. Caro, you reckon you can be an app developer through the headset? Is that within your skill set? Most definitely. <laughs> Probably through ChatGPT, right? I mean, we've played around with the headsets. I can't imagine going as far as sort of coding within it or making a command to beyond video games. I mean, but it's an hopeless. interesting use case. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I, I'm going to leave it to the professionals. But, I mean, who knows how creative we can become when left to our own devices. I, I first need the $3,000. You can give me that before right. I can then start doing it. Yeah, I mean, this story about the headset is just not going to go away, is it? <laughs> anyway, coming up, more pain for Indian tycoon Galton Adani's corporate empire. We'll tell you the extent of the damages caused by that short seller's report. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Who are Hindenburg Research? The US investment firm says it specializes in forensic financial research and publishing short sellers reports. Hindenburg's in the news again with wide ranging allegations against conglomerates owned by Gautam Adani, Asia's richest person. Founded by a guy called Nate Anderson, the firm's named after the 1937 Hindenburg disaster. Hindenburg says it looks for similar man-made disasters that may be floating around the market and aims to shed light on them. Hindenburg says it seeks results through uncovering hard to find information from quote atypical sources but warns investors opinions and investigative commentary are its own readers advise the use of its material is at your own risk the firm really hit the headlines in 2020 targeting electric truck maker nikola and its founder trevor milton they claimed milton deceived investors ultimately milton resigned there was a criminal investigation and trial and milton was found guilty of securities and wire fraud now that you know what Hindenburg does, here's a little bit more about why you heard about them this week. It issued a report on Tuesday detailing wide-ranging allegations of corporate malpractice at Adani Enterprises following a two-year investigation. The market route that followed erased more than $51 billion of value this week across the empire, which is owned by Gautam Adani, Asia's richest man. The Adani Group, the main listed part of the conglomerate, disputed Hindenburg's allegations Thursday, but its stock just kept plunging. The firm lost almost 19% on Friday. Biggest drop, Caro, since 2017. An issue as he wants to raise funds. An issue is, well, because tell us why this is a technology story. What is it in the conglomerate that yeah. affects us and our industry? 
Two reasons. One, Adani's moved into media companies. But two, the thesis from Hindenburg is that even his cement companies trade. They have multiples like tech stocks. And that for them was a worrying side. And Hindenburg, again, a short seller, take a caution what they say. But they see 85% potential downside drop from where they think these assets are really valued. Well, this certainly made their impact from a monetary value perspective over there in India. So we've got to keep all over that sort of a story. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde, back in New York, San Francisco-based Ed Ludlow. You're there. And and actually, both of us took a keen eye on what was happening in terms of earnings, particularly a credit card giant American Express today, right? Because their shares absolutely spiraling higher, up 10%. And it's because the company gave a pretty upbeat revenue forecast. They had record number of new cardholders for 2022. And I actually got to have a quick chat with the CEO, Steve Squarey, earlier this morning. He was talking about his resilient customer base, of course, a pretty premium customer, Ed. But he also had some really interesting takes on technology, particularly when it comes to small businesses, because he was saying, look, I've noticed that digital advertising spend is down for those small businesses that I serve. And he said, to quote him, I don't know if that's a function of the economy or a function of confusion. And he's talking about the fact that at the moment, TikTok, Twitter, whether you're looking at Meta, at Google, the the regulatory implications, some of the political implications, the societal, he's saying that's a lot to deal with to try and digest as a small business as to whether you want to be putting your money to work there. Well, it's interesting on the other side, the consumer side as well, because, you know, I scroll my phone often, see a product I like on social, jump jump into it. That's part of the e-commerce ecosystem. For me, what jumped out, a company giving guidance for the year, yes. confidence. And I think it is a technology, right? Because it's payments. It's people facilitating transactions and great job getting on the phone because we need to know what's going on. Yeah, he was really saying, I've got clarity out and I've got confidence to 2024. Who else can say that? And I can, I can tell you not many people in perhaps the crypto world got that sort of level of foresight right now. And let's just go to that now, because Anthony Scaramucci, Skybridge Capital, we know the kind of pain that that's been in. It's lost 39%, in fact, in its biggest funds after some pretty wrong way bets, whether it's crypto that they invested with or, of course, the now bankrupt FTX relationship. Let's bring in the one and only Shanali Basak, who's about to head out to Miami to meet a few crypto players as well as hedge fund Glitterati. Talk to us about Scaramucci and how much he's been burned by this space. Listen, he has been pivoting Skybridge to focus more and more on crypto the last couple of years. And remember, this is not just buying cryptocurrencies. He had a stake in FTX in various rounds of the financing. So he was really hurt in November when FTX had filed for bankruptcy. We also know there's that other issue here that FTX Ventures had taken a stake here in Skybridge. And so that had come up for question when they filed for bankruptcy on whether he'd be able to buy his stake back. Now, the big issue here. Skybridge tumbled 39% last year. It significantly tumbled. A big question here because they have limited withdrawals when it comes to Skybridge. What I know about Skybridge is a lot of the Bitcoin, for example, that they bought was at about $18,000 on average. So to some extent that they could see some uh, rebound this year, it would be hugely helpful because of the route that they're facing. Because remember, Skybridge is not just invested in cryptocurrencies and crypto kind of venture here. They're also invested in a lot of hedge funds. And while some hedge funds have had a tough year, there are a couple that did a little better last year, too. So taking the good with the bad in a tough year for Anthony Scaramucci. I hope the audience got the audible gasp from Caroline in the background because I gave a similar one there. I guess my question, right, you're a fund, 
I think on the crypto side, they're looking a lot at private companies. As you said, they also invest in some hedge funds. That was 2022. How did they get themselves out of that and back on the right track in 2023? Yeah, you know, I can't help but talk already about this big Miami trip that many hedge fund managers are making into this weekend, into next week. Because starting Sunday night, starting Monday, you have the Managed Funds Association, a big hedge fund community, starting off with a series of events on restoring faith in crypto at a reception also that's sponsored by Coinbase. So you do have the crypto community really pushing here to restore that faith. You have Mike Novogratz speaking at a separate conference, iConnections also in Miami, to start restoring faith in crypto. You have a lot of fund managers alongside traditional fund managers talking to the same big investors to bring people back in. In my own conversations, what I'll tell you is that there are a lot of people out there that still say, listen, Bitcoin didn't fail last year, even though so much of the market right. did. There's a lot of conversation among traditional asset managers that will be down there next week about whether they buy some of these claims out of bankruptcy. And uh, there is a lot of question uh, around how to invest as a traditional investor. But again, um, there are still a lot of people who have felt a lot of pain from last year, Ed. Well, the big headline this Friday is that Bloomberg Shanali Basak is off to Miami. So Miami, watch out. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get a lot of headlines from her, not just of crypto, but the world of fintech as well. And staying on fintech, Fidelity, again, slashing its valuation. This is interesting, of Ant Group. According to filings, Fidelity cut its estimate for Ant by about 9% to $63.8 billion as of the end of November. That's down from $235 billion just before Ant's IPO was halted in November. November of 2020. Ant has been overhauling its business to comply with Chinese government demands, as we have been discussing, Caroline, about the situation in mainland China for some time now. I want to broaden out this discussion around valuations, particularly from the venture capital perspective, and bring in Bilal Zaberi, general partner at Lux Capital. Interesting what we just heard there, lots of threads, valuations in China. But I just actually want to go with the week that was. This, this has been a really volatile week, not just in terms of markets, but headlines. Markets to the upside. As a VC that's just heard all of that from our program and sat through a week like this, what's your experience of the week been? What's your takeaway from this week's news cycle? I mean, you know, NASDAQ is up about 10% this year, right? So in some sense, this is good news. But at the end of the day, VCs, we invest in early stage technology companies. For us at Lux Capital, specifically, we invest in the intersection of technology and sciences. And this is a great time to be building those companies. Great talent is becoming available. They're starting companies to solve real world problems. You know, think about physical security. Think about saving lives, all the shootings and gun detection technology, for example, that we've invested in, drug discovery companies, automation, autonomy, bringing manufacturing back to the US. So regardless of what sector you look at, right now there's interesting companies that are getting founded and, and invested in. And the good thing is that nobody's looking at exits uh, you know, for these companies in the next year or two. We're just making sure these companies are fully funded and are able to create great products and take them to market. Bilal, Caroline and I were reflecting on our, our weekly Twitter spaces earlier that the, the headlines on layoffs came right at the beginning of this week. And you, you, there's been so many stories from the world of technology that you forget actually uh, throughout it have been some, some pretty negative headlines, especially those around layoffs, IBM, Spotify being examples. Does that present an opportunity for a venture capitalist like you? Are you kind of putting pressure on your portfolio founders to say, hey, go out there and hire these people. They're on the market. 
my inbox is filled with resumes that have come in from people who've been laid off from these companies. And I'm absolutely working hard to get them, you know, hired, some of the best talent hired into our portfolio companies. This is two years ago that we told our portfolio companies to raise capital because we sort of knew in some ways that the peak had arrived. We obviously didn't know exactly when, but we wanted them to raise as much capital as they could to be able to survive the long term. And these companies that are sitting on that capital now is not only able to hire these candidates, but also able to acquire some other companies along the way to bring more technology into the mix and, and bring it to their customers. Let's talk about hype or not, therefore, because amid some of the concerns and the, and the worries about technology pulling back, valuations pulling back, people being let go, there feels like there's another sort of NFT crypto vibe around AI. Can you tell us about what you're feeling there, Bilal, as to whether you're getting that exuberance? What Are we at the dawn of a new internet stage? Uh, I think there's something called the Gartner's hype cycle. So every new technology comes with its own hype. Uh, and you just have to sort of live through it and know that there will be ups and downs along the way, and that's okay. Um, there is a lot of noise around AI, but AI is also real. I think, you know, there's something unique that happens with these, you know, chatbots and LLM and other things that have happened that when you have very large parameters, we're talking about 20 billion parameters or more, you start to see very interesting results. And I think people are now starting to figure out how to utilize them to solve real world problems. So we're seeing, you know, the applications of AI in new industries like healthcare, like uh, education, like in construction, in autonomy and, and, and automation. And I think there's going to be a real companies built. We're super excited about that. Uh, at the same time, you know, just like any other industry, I wouldn't just say that for FTX or crypto, the same thing happened in the world of drones and VRAR. You have to be just very careful that you build real world companies that are solving problems and creating real value for the customers at the end. Yeah, and real value is something that's now being questioned, for example, for a big public company like Tesla, which a lot of its big focus long term value is about automated driving. I know that's an area of expertise for you. I know that's somewhere that you've been investing in with some of your portfolio companies and leading that for Lux Capital. Where are we in that overall hype cycle that we were just talking through? I mean, look, there's some level of autonomy available to all of us. You know, if you can buy a car now, it will do self-driving. It will do lane keeping. I love it. <laughs> uh, it will update, uh, uh, you know, new software will update uh, more frequently. But obviously, Tesla is further advanced than most of the other automotive OEMs out there. But uh, I think automotive and autonomous technologies here. But I also want to add that AIML, similar technology platforms such as um, autonomous driving is being applied to other industries as well. Well, mm-hmm. right? Distributed sensor, uh, sensors are being used to detect guns and weapons at entrances to buildings. AIML is being applied to uh, looking for threats in those systems. Completely different industry. You know, company like Evolve Technologies focused on that. Completely different than autonomous technology, but using the same paradigms and using some of the same technologies. And in some ways, we call it the peace dividend of the autonomous wars, that all the technology that's getting developed from autonomous cars are going to be used in many other industries and create value elsewhere as well. Fascinating. Got to get you back. Really always love speaking with the VC community at the moment about where there is the really focus to be get and the value. Bilal, we thank you so much, of course. Bilal Saveri, he is, of course, of Lux Capital. Let's check in, though, on some of the public side of the equation. We're just talking about Tesla and some of the other discussions. But, I mean, chip stocks have really been taking it hard, right, Ed? 
Yeah, and I want to go back to Intel because at one point on Friday, the stock's down the most since October 2021. It, it paired some of its declines. I think we had our biggest drop since September, the worst week for this stock in about five weeks. But, you know, this kind of killed the momentum, right? I know the NASDAQ 100 pushed higher Friday. The Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, or SOX, did react negatively, but again, paired some of its losses. What was astonishing for the market is that expectations for Intel were already pretty low. And this was even worse than that, the forecast for the first quarter and outlook for the rest of the year. And with so many chip names still to report next week, in particular, we get Qualcomm, right, Caroline? I think now we're probably bracing a little bit. You know, we're probably a bit concerned about the outlook, particularly for consumer electronics for the rest of 2023. Some of the turns of phrase being used by the analysts, Bernstein calling it astonishingly bad and stunning. So, um, I mean, just we hope well, I suppose for many, we hope that it's not going to oh, be replicated next week. Yeah. Meanwhile, coming up, Ed, well, maybe next week we'll hear more of this as well, tech layoffs. And look, it's impacting workers on temporary visas too. There is, though, one non-profit that's trying to lend a hand in all of that. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We talk about it time and time again, Ed, tech companies cutting costs, looking at the future that perhaps is a bit bleaker. And in particular, it's affecting the workers, isn't it? In particular, H-1B visa holders whose status in the U.S. is directly tied to their employment. And so you and I, we took to our audience, we got on overall the focus on Twitter because some companies like Spotify, day at the beginning of the week when they announced layoffs, said they're going to be helping out the employees who are on visas. And interestingly, when we asked our audience, should this be standard? 60% said yes. Yeah. Yeah, they should be. 
Yeah, you know, you know, and, and I'm not surprised by that, Caroline. Think about where I am in San Francisco, the Bay Area, or even where you are on the East Coast, not just New York, but cities like Chicago, other cities. Many of these workers are here in this sector, technology, whether they're on the software side or otherwise, on visas. You know, it's just an incredibly difficult situation for them. Uh, we've got a perfect guest to talk about this. Uh, Brad Henderson, CEO of P33. This is a not-for-profit in Chicago, which is basically trying to directly help with this, right, Brad? You're basically saying, let's take what is an available portion of the workforce and find a solution here. Talk us through what you're trying to achieve. Sure, yeah, we're really trying to respond to this moment in time where um, so many people are being laid off. And if you think about our, our workforce in the technical field, 40% of it is foreign born. Many of these individuals have 60 days right now to find uh, a job or leave the country with their families. And so what excites us in Chicago is we're just stock full of these companies that do real things in the real economy and people's lives. And we actually have tons of open positions, 160,000 jobs in technical fields open in Chicago today. And really just to reach out to the thousands of people around the country who are in dire straits but highly skilled and say, if you got 60 days and you want to find a great opportunity to have an impact on a business that matters, go to our website, apply to a job, and contribute to our economy. Talk to us about the fact that actually that adds in many ways to diversity. When I think of H-1B visas, I think of, well, my husband was on one until we were lucky enough to get our green cards. But there's also an awful lot of people coming from India in particular. This is people of color. Is this going to add to diversity of thought as well over in Chicago? Sure. If you think about the long-term trajectory for tech, we are short in our country hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs. Uh, Talented people, I apologize, thousands of people. Where do you find those folks? You're going to have to find new channels. Those channels exist for talented people in countries like India and countries in Africa and Europe, et cetera. And they exist in other forms of diversity, neighborhoods in Chicago that haven't always had access to jobs like this. In order for us to meet the challenge of the technical age, we need to find talent wherever we can find it. And diversity ends up being a huge strength in meeting those objectives. Brad, we're showing a graphic on the screen which outlines how severe some of the cuts have been at names like Meta, Salesforce, Alphabet, Microsoft, IBM. Are these the names where these workers that are reaching out to you coming from? Are you literally getting uh, interest and inquiry from the technology sector? It's been two days since our job board is up. We've had 16,000 unique visitors from all across the country from the very names that you're describing. We're getting to engage with people who you know, may have been focused on engineering tweets, uh, who now get an opportunity to look at a company like Walgreens, which is a Chicago-based company, who's using digital technology to transform healthcare uh, and, and really access those people who had jobs in big tech on tweets and social media projects and put them to work at uh, companies like Walgreens solving critical healthcare challenges. We're seeing folks from all over the country respond to that. Easy or difficult is it to transfer an H-1B visa? How much is it going to have to be an uphill battle for some of these companies like a Walgreens based where you are who want to have this talent? This is the best part about what we're trying to do here is if you think about the broader question of reforming the U.S. immigration system, that's really hard and going to take a very long time. 
This program, there's actually quite a misnomer that it's cumbersome or particularly costly. Mm -hmm. All the companies we're working with are companies that already go through this process, that already have budget to support these workers' transfers. So the jobs are just sitting there waiting. And what we've done on our job board, I think one of the things that's really made it so the workers around the country have responded to what we're doing is all the jobs we posted, it's thousands of jobs available at this site, are ones that are H-1B visa eligible. And so the reality is this one's actually pretty straightforward. They do this, it's affordable, they've got a process of figuring it out every time someone applies, and so for this particular program, it's just a matter of doing the right thing and connecting the dots. Brad Henderson fixing a real problem right here right now for many we thank you and indeed their families he's the ceo of p33 and what a interesting way to actually be looking at what is in many ways just a market inefficiency there there's the people who want the work who need it very swiftly and it's just trying to find the right way to line them up yeah I cannot believe what he's just told us, that their portal or their board has been open for two days. 16,000 people mm. have inquired, and the majority of them, or you know, many of them, as he put it, are from the technology sector. You know, it shows what's happening in real times in this economy and how quickly it's moving. It's happening. We have a new stock market obsession and it's artificial intelligence. Cue a number of stocks and investors desperately trying to get in on the AI tech trend. The way they do it, or maybe they buy into a small cap name like C3AI and makes enterprise AI applications. It's stock on a record month so far. We get the likes of BuzzFeed, its share price spiking 300% on the week because it announces a deal with OpenAI to be using it within its content creation. We've also had little known voice AI makers like SoundHound AI also on the upside. We're getting NVIDIA, the chip maker, which has its chips used by AI services, also getting bid up some 40% on the month. This all feels pretty reminiscent of the past. Quite recently, 2021, everyone was trying to have an NFT kind of part of their business. Maybe back in 2017, you remember when Long Island Ice Tea rebranded its company name as Long Blockchain? And therefore, we also go back to the 1990s when suddenly every company had an internet strategy or changed its name to .com. These sorts of fads do come and go. The question is, has this one got staying power? So what do you think, Ed? Fad or here to stay? So it's a case-by-case -case basis, right, on, on all of these things, what the AI does and the valuations, the money behind it. The BuzzFeed story, mm. um, I'm a journalist, you're a journalist, being replaced by AI, but I get the business case. Yeah. You know, BuzzFeed's got to feed the content on its site, and you look at the market response, Woo! Yeah. Well, thankfully, I think that's it's going to be its games and its quizzes, we hope, <laughs> that it's going to we be hope, really yeah. putting those AI applications towards. But what worries me is it suddenly becomes a scavenger hunt for the right ticker symbol, right? The acronym that you're using yes. when, it come, when you summarize what your business does on a Bloomberg, for example. And what's C3AI's? AI. Yeah. Go. Like, ticker, no wonder AI. it's getting a load of interest. Yeah, and look, there's real momentum behind this stock. I think the, the Friday rally was looking at a jump of around 18%. Yeah. 
uh, over a, f- a few month basis, 40%. But the month to date performance, the stock's up 60% so far in January, 6-0. And, and, but I go to analyst recommendations on the Bloomberg, only one buy on this, three sells, only, and there's seven holds. Like The analysts looking at the stock aren't thinking that it should have this sort of a price level at the moment. The overall price target for the next 12 months is $13.63. It's more right. the euphoria around it. It feels a little bit meany. Yeah, no fundamentals here. And then we spoke about uh, Jensen and NVIDIA earlier in the show, right? This is driving wealth and it's driving valuation. Yeah. Astonishing. Next week, we're going to have a lot more on the driving wealth and valuations when it comes to earnings, right? But for so far, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget, lots of earnings to come next week and catch our podcast wherever you get it. This is Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.